0: Uh, there's a guy called Rico Tice it's a funny name really when you think about it but um, he has written a great book called Honest Evangelism which is really all about how do Christians tell other people who don't know Jesus about Jesus and he says that whenever we tell people about Jesus there are generally two responses that we can expect to hear There, uh, there is hunger and there is hostility so to some people, the gospel is like the missing piece of the puzzle. When they hear it, everything else seems to make perfect sense. Okay? So there's the hunger. That's the hunger we expect to see. They believe it and they want to hear more about it. Uh, to other people, the Christian message is nonsense. It's believed and spread by people who are essentially intellectually inferior or worse, narrow-minded. Now, some people hold the opinion, that kind of opinion, with a kind of silent pity. It's like, oh, poor, stupid people. Um, But others vent that opinion, actually, with much more animosity. Christians, you know, are called hate-filled bigots who should be ignored and maybe even suppressed. Well, there's the hostility that we can expect to see. In Acts chapter 1, in these verses that we've read through to 2311, we see only one of these things. We don't see any hunger, we just see a lot of hostility. And yet, what the Apostle Paul shows us is just how God is at work, even through someone like him, in that kind of context. And it provides for us a useful illustration of what we can do and how we can conduct ourselves, first of all, in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. In other words, in a way that shows that we're obedient to God, but also how we can, secondly, be courageous in sharing the gospel and making the most of the opportunity, even in hard, difficult times like that, when the animosity is, well, fierce. So I'm going to walk through this passage just with those two points. Now, the first thing is uh, the first point was conduct yourself in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. What does this text actually say to us? There's a lot in it. Well, I don't know if you noticed, but everybody in this story thinks that they've got the Apostle Paul all figured out. The Jews think Paul is a threat to their culture. In chapter 1, verse 28, they said he's against our people, our law, and our place. That was like the Holy Trinity uh, for the Jews back then. These are the very things that made up their Jewish identity. It's as if they were saying, Paul is threatening The very things that we exist for. This is what we live for and he's a threat to it. And what's more they say, he's teaching others to be against us in the very same same way. And therefore that's why we see the city is in an uproar from all directions. There's an uproar. And it's their intention to kill Paul until in verse 31 to 32 of chapter 21 we see the Romans step in. But they've got Paul all wrong as well. They think Paul was a threat to peace. They basically consider him some kind of insurgent. In verses 37 to 39, we read, As the Romans were taking Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? And then to which the commander replied, Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists into the wilderness some time ago? Now, it seems like in a decade or so before this, there's an historical account of this Egyptian guy who was trying to lead a revolt against the occupying Roman Roman army in that day and it all went really badly wrong and they fled into the desert. So at any point the Romans were thinking, well, they've just gone to gather the troops, do a bit more training and then come back in after that. So this is why this guy's automatically assumed he's the Egyptian terrorist. Now, what we see then is everybody in this story has Paul all wrong. Because he's not dishonoring the religious practices of the Jews or their temple. The whole episode in verses 17 26, in this taking of what's called a Nazarite vow, shows that actually Paul was really bending over backwards to honor the customs of his people. And even in verse 1, when Paul begins to actually speak to them with bumps and bruises all over him, I'm sure, he addressed them respectfully, brothers and fathers, he starts. The truth was, Paul was being respectful, ensuring that no one could accuse him of dishonoring any of these three things that they were accusing him of. And Paul's no threat to the Romans either. He's no terrorist. I mean, the Roman commander took him for an insurgent, but Paul shocks him when he addresses him politely in Greek. You know, that surprises the commander. You speak Greek, he said. Now, Paul then demonstrates his intellect by saying, look, I'm I'm not a crazy terrorist, as you might think. Uh, I'm, I'm from Tarsus in Cilicia, which is no ordinary city, he says. That's like someone saying, to, you know, from Edinburgh saying, some, saying to someone from Edinburgh, aren't you from Glasgow? To which he responds, I'm an Edinburgh from Midlothian, a citizen of no ordinary city. We have a castle, you know. <laughs> you know, there are various things like that, that, kind of like that. So everyone in this story thinks that they have Paul all figured out, but everyone in this story has Paul all wrong. In the midst of all they're pushing and shoving with threats of violence and scourging the amazing thing that you see in here is Paul seems calm Paul's calm even respectful respectful to these people who are beating him without a trial or accusing him of being an insurgent and are ready to flog him without a trial. That is injustice and it's terrible Now how does this apply to us? People in our city are increasingly likely, I think, to see Christianity as a bit of a threat to their way of life or to culture as a whole. Uh, when you think about it either on an individual level or a cultural level, or on an individual level, people like to live the way that they want to live. They don't like the idea that someone might tell them how they ought to live. No one likes being told what to do. And it's no surprise that people find joy... Um, immersing themselves in the kind of things that the bible does very straightforwardly call wrong and when someone brings Jesus up in conversation a person can be quite defensive and maybe even unkind and it's almost like a self-protective thing they don't want these things that they cling to the, the things that they're in they enjoy doing really to be threatened and that's when, as Christians, Christians can experience family or friends—you know—surprisingly, people who are very close to you, maybe treating you a little bit unkindly or unfairly, and responding to your love with hate. Uh, and the same can happen even in relation to our, in a cultural context in the wider society. Uh, we certainly don't live in a religious culture like they did in first-century Jerusalem. We live in a secular culture, culture but our culture still holds to its own set of values, uh, religiously, you could say. For example, tolerance. Our society is obsessed with tolerance. It's easily become one of the most important virtues in our society, because one, fir- one of the worst things that can be said about you is that you are intolerant. Now, tolerance, to my surprise, is being redefined. It used to mean that we're uh, two people could disagree on some matter but are are happy to respectfully put up with each other despite their disagreement. That sounds like tolerance to me. Um, That was the thing about tolerance. It presupposed that there was disagreement. But our culture has changed its meaning. Tolerance today means accepting the things that society values, accepting the things that you might otherwise disagree on. That's very different. So try disagreeing with someone on matters such as gender and sexuality and you'll not be tolerated. Uh, Even when you try to explain that despite your disagreement on such matters, you not only put up with but love people who advocate such beliefs, you experience the kind of vitriol that Paul experienced in Jerusalem. And that's when angry and even unfair accusations can fly. That's when cultural mobs throw mud at you troll you on social media, and ironically, demonstrating their intolerance of you. So how do we respond? How should Christians respond in that regard? Well, in the midst of all that pushing and shoving, like Paul, we exercise calm and we remain respectful. We don't respond with hateful words or with unkindness. That's what helped to win over a lady called Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield was a university professor in English and women's studies in uh, a university in the United States. I can't remember which one. Uh, She was living with her lesbian partner and admitted that during that time the name Jesus was like an elephant tusk in her throat. She thought that she had Christians all figured out. They were intolerant, she said. But she also used words like stupid, pointless, even menacing in regards to their influence on society. Now, until one day when a pastor of a church wrote her a letter in response to an article that she had posted in a local newspaper. Uh, She had torn Christians apart. Yet the pastor's letter, by her own admission, was a kind, an inquiring letter. It wasn't defensive. It wasn't disrespectful. He didn't argue with Rosaria's points. He simply asked her to explain how she arrived at her conclusions She was writing about the church and about Christianity in general and how uh, intolerant people were. But could she defend her presuppositions? That was the question the pastor was asking. And was she sure that she was right? She said, all of a sudden, Pastor Ken's letter punctured the integrity of my article. As an academic, that bothered me. Could I have been wrong? I quickly realized that I could be. And so began discussions over dinner. Ken and his wife were not like the placard-waving Christians she had presupposed all Christians to be. She found Ken to be very engaging, loving even, tolerant in the original sense of the word, respectful despite their disagreement. And in her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, which is a brilliant read, she explains how she came to believe in Jesus and how his name was no longer an elephant tusk in her throat but a new song in her mouth. So in the midst of all the pushing and shoving, where people are throwing mud at you, unfairly so, I suppose you could just sum up all that in one word. Love. You're like, I wish he had summed it up in in one word. Love, love. It means a lot. We remain calm. We don't throw mud back. We love but it's more than that. The second thing we've seen here is that we're courageous. We not only remain calm, we we are courageous in our sharing of the gospel. We see this in chapter 22, in particular, this passage. What does it tell us? Well, it tells us that when we love and when we exercise respect, even in response to offense, we don't say nothing. In fact, the way we act is the is is intended to try and bring about a willingness in those around us to give us a hearing. And that's what happened to Paul. In 2140, we read that having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps, having been beaten, and motioned to the crowd and spoke to them in Aramaic, their own dialect, brothers and fathers. And then Paul does this brilliant thing where he just tells them of how he became a Christian. Like he wasn't always... This person, something happened in his life. And he says to them, I was just like you until I met Jesus. He changed my life and I'm living for him. He says, I was just like you in verses 1 to 5. He says, I was a Jew, just like you. Brought up in Jerusalem. So in verse 3, it tells us he's a native. He's one of their own. More than that though. He was trained in the law under none other than Gamaliel. You all know Gamaliel, don't you? No, you don't. Gamaliel, basically, was the grandson of a famous teacher in Israel called Hillel, who basically wrote the law book on Pharisaism and keeping the law of Moses. Um, but Gamaliel himself, the grandson of Hillel, he was a living legend. So studying under Gamaliel would be like learning to play football under Lionel Messi, for example. He was, he was just that good. Okay. Paul was exceptionally well-trained then, and really as zealous as any of the people there who are throwing mud at him and being upset about the things that he was saying. In fact, Paul in this passage, and as he gives his speech, is challenging anyone, anyone to doubt his credentials, claiming in verse 4 that even the high priest and the council themselves, so the guys, the Sanhedrin, that, that then uh, unfairly tried him in uh, chapter 23, 23, 22, I did not even know where I read to, 23, um, that um, he claims that these guys on the council can testify that Paul himself was a killer of Christians. He persecuted them. He used to get permission from these guys and go to other cities and towns, round up the men and women who were putting their faith and trust in Jesus and believing that he not only died on the cross but rose again three days later, and he's thrown them into prison. So he challenges them on this. That, that was his life. He was perfectly happy and totally believed that he was right in this pursuit of this religious life in Judaism. As a Pharisee, top-notch Jew. Until, Paul says, when I met Jesus. And God turned on the lights. We see this in verses 6 to 13 of chapter 22. One day, Paul was on a journey to Damascus to apprehend Christians Uh, warrant in hand and Christ apprehended him he stopped him dead in his tracks and when Saul asked who is this that appeared to him kind of silly question right blinding light everybody falls down you know that's why he really says who are you Lord you know I know he knew fine and well who it was and the voice responds in no uncertain terms I am Jesus Of Nazareth. Not some other Jesus, but the one who was crucified and killed for claiming to be the Messiah King. Remember what was posted above Jesus' head as he died on the cross? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He is the historical Jesus, the one who really lived and who really died and who really rose again. And Saul as he was known then, wasn't daft. He knew fine and well that this settled the question, the Jesus question, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Jesus really is Lord. And that's what he's then telling the Jews who are listening. It's a gentle yet clear way of saying we were wrong about him. We're wrong. He does exist. You can't say he doesn't exist. He does exist. And what he said and promised and did was all true it happened and it's right and we can't ignore it. Now no doubt as Paul described the events of Jesus' appearance the crowd recognized the similarities even with the call of heroes of the Jewish faith like Moses and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Paul is saying look I'm not making this up this, isn't, this shouldn't be bizarre to your ears and that's why in verse 10 we find Saul asking Jesus what he should do because that's what happens when you become a Christian. You, When you come face to face with Jesus and meet him for yourself. You recognize that a change takes place in your life. You no longer live for yourself but for him who died for you. And that's what we see in verses 14 to 16. Where Paul can say now I'm living for him. I, I was just like you until I met Jesus. Now I'm living for him. So when Paul's sight is restored by Ananias. Paul's told exactly what's going on and what he's supposed to do. Ananias uh, says, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and see the righteous one, that's Jesus, and to hear words from his mouth. In other words, you handpicked Paul for this. You're a special messenger of God. Uh, it's another word for it in the Bible is apostle. And you're going to be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. What do witnesses do when you're in court? What, a, what does a witness do? Well, they testify to the truth. So Paul is being told that your life is now going to be all about testifying to the truth about Jesus Christ everywhere. And in fact, the witnessing starts right there, right right now. Get up, Ananias says to him, be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. And this is what baptism signifies for us. Baptism is what Jesus has commanded his church to do. Baptism is what Jesus' church has practiced for centuries. It really is a way of testifying to everyone that you believe in Jesus. And it's a way of displaying to everyone, of kind of putting out a a very tangible illustration of what the gospel is, of how you came to believe in Jesus. For when a person gets into the water, as Leah will soon, you, you see that person standing in the water And it's as if they're saying, I've been crucified with Christ. I'm dying to Christ, just as he died on the cross. And when they go under the water, that symbolizes the fact that Christ was buried for three days. But we do bring them back up out of the water. You'll be glad to hear that in in respect of the fact that Jesus Christ himself rose from the dead three days later. And the, the, the gospel then is symbolized for us in baptism. It also symbolizes, of course, this washing away of a person's sins. And just as Ananias said, so Paul's instructions are made clear that when he returns to Jerusalem as well, he sees a vision in which the Lord says, I know you're going to be rejected by this people, so go, I'm going to send you far away to the Gentiles. In other words, you, Paul, are won by the gospel for the purpose of spreading this gospel. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, like Paul, exercising love and respect doesn't mean that you say nothing. We courageously tell people about Jesus despite animosity and unkindness. And one of the ways that we do that is by telling the story of our, what we call conversion, of how we came to meet Jesus. Now, we're all very different. Uh, Even in this church family, we come from different backgrounds, some from different countries and cultures. We've had different upbringings, different experiences of life. Yet every one of us has a story to tell of how God has changed our lives and taken us from that mud and mire and given us that rock, that firm place to stand. And every one of us who believe in Jesus tonight could essentially pattern our testimony Um, Our story on Paul's. We can all say to people who don't believe in Jesus yet, we can say, I was just like you until I met Jesus. He's changed my life and I'm living for Him. Uh, Leah, who's been baptized, can say that. Uh, She was bounced on the lap of Christian parents and heard the name of Jesus sung to her in lullabies, I'm sure. I grew up going to Sunday school, but none of that made her a Christian, you understand. No one can get into heaven on someone else's ticket. Essentially, she was just like many of the people in this city who hadn't taken hold of the gift of grace for themselves despite their age or stage or background, etc. But when she was young, something changed. She met Jesus. He revealed himself to her through the gospel and she said that she asked Jesus into her heart, which means that she understood that she needed him because she saw that she was a sinner and that Jesus was a savior. And from that point on she began to live for him in little ways. Uh, no one does that perfectly but Leah loves Jesus and is going to be baptized today to tell everybody that. And this is one of the ways that Christians can say to Jesus, thank you, you are my only hope. Uh, this is the way, one of the ways in which Christians say to the world, Jesus has washed my sins away and now I'm living for him. Now, we all have a story like that. What's your story? My story is that I was brought up in a, in a family that were nominally Catholic. Uh, they went along to church on a Sunday, but lived how they wanted to live the rest of their week. Um, or, to be a Catholic, in my view, when I was growing up, meant that you went along to church on a Sunday and supported Celtic. And that was about the gist of it. And I supported Aberdeen, so I wasn't a very good Catholic. Um, <laughs> um, but as I was growing up, I was about eight or nine when I realized that my dad was an alcoholic. And I responded to that fairly badly, as I'm sure some of you will appreciate. And as I grew up, I was 11 when I, when I first started taking drugs, which is terribly, terribly young. Okay, And I was 14 by the time that I was dealing drugs. Now, I'm not saying this in any boastful way or anything like that. All of that lifestyle is immensely regrettable and should be to any young person listening totally, totally avoided. Now, I used to think that I was doing all those things and living the way I wanted to live because it was some kind of pity party about the situation with my dad and my own family and so on, but it wasn't. I enjoyed immersing myself in a sinful way and all the while I was rejecting God who was ready and willing to help me if I turned to him. I got out of that place where I lived And I I went to Dundee. I went to study, and I met someone, and she didn't swear, and that was weird. Yeah, it was weird. And then, you know, I said, "What? Why? Why do you not swear? You know, it's quite odd." Uh, And she said it was because she was a Christian, and I found that fascinating because I thought, you know, to believe that Jesus was real, was really to believe that Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker were actual people. You know, it was, it was, Christianity was on a par with Star Wars. And yet, I, and the more I explored this with her, the more I realized that actually there were people who really believed this. People who were far from being nominal in their reading in the Bible, their understanding of Christianity and their desire to live it out. And she did two wonderful things. She took me along to see you and she connected me with guys who wanted to play football with me and read the Bible with me, which was great. Not at the same time. And as we read the Bible over a period of six months, I started to realize this is true. What is written about Jesus here is actually written about him in other Ancient historical documents, and then actually, I started to realize this is true. I need to read this Bible for sure and look into it and find out that the things that Jesus said, if these were really true, well, he's amazing. And I can do nothing else apart from put my faith and trust in him. And one night, I heard a guy preach at Dundee UniCU as he preached on a passage about in Gethsemane where Jesus is immediately before the cross. And he willingly goes forward to pay the price for our sin, the wrong things that I had done wrong in my life. He did it willingly and he did it in love so that I wouldn't be punished for those sins for he took that punishment on himself. And all of a sudden, it was like a blinding light. Uh, My eyes were opened to see the cross for what it really was forgiveness, a symbol of new life for all who trust in Him. And I saw myself as I really was sinful, under His judgment, and in need of rescue. Now, if you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, can I ask you what you think of Paul's story, Leah's story, my story, the story of the people around you who are just representative of millions of people across this world who've considered this carefully and found it to be true? What do you make of it all? Maybe you doubt whether God could love someone like you. You feel like your life is messy. You've maybe sinned so much that you're beyond God's forgiveness. My response to that is you've not. What are you waiting for then? Get up. Be baptized. Wash your sins away calling upon his name. It's only by calling on his name that we are saved. And the very fact that we have somebody like Paul in this passage who killed Christians for a living. If God can take someone like him, a persecutor, and turn him into a preacher, then there's hope for every single one of us. And my encouragement for you would be to look into this, or even right now, to just hold up the proverbial hands and say, I'm sorry that I've lived the way I've lived. I'm meeting you right now, and I'm going to live a different way Forgive me for my sin. Help me to live for you. And you can do that. Now maybe you're not quite ready to believe the gospel like that, but you're interested to find out more. Maybe you can ask the person who brought you to explain it a bit more. Some people, of course, have found it helpful to look at the claims of Christianity alongside other people who are exploring Christianity to find out if it's true themselves. They've enjoyed our course that we run called Christianity Explored. It's a little group that walks through one of the biographical accounts of Jesus, the gospel of Mark, Uh, Why not go along to that? Ask the person that brought you. They'll be glad to tell you all about it. They might be chum you. But maybe you're not that interested. Maybe you find the whole prospect of the existence of God, the idea of being accountable to God, and the need of forgiveness and so on, just untenable. It still doesn't sit right. Although we are saddened by that response. Very sad about that, actually. Uh, We are not surprised. But you should also know It won't put us off. It would be the most unloving thing that we could possibly do to never tell you about the great hope that we have. And I pray you would listen and give us an ear. For for us, God gives us in our hearts the courage to keep on speaking and share this good news. And that's what we see in closing. Paul goes through the rigmarole again. Before the Sanhedrin, And he's in prison a couple of nights later wondering what is going on here. And the Lord speaks to him, comes alongside him and says, as you've testified about me, he says, take courage. As you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. I'm not done with you yet, Paul. You preach the gospel to Jews in Jerusalem. You'll preach the gospel to the whole world in Rome. And in the same way, when the people that we know prefer their own notion of life, maybe the way that they want to live and reject the gospel that we share, maybe even us, then let's take courage that the Lord is in us. The Lord is near us as he was with Paul. And as we've testified about Jesus this past week or even today, so we will testify about him again because this is what God has called us to do. We have been saved by the gospel for the purpose of spreading the gospel, and that is the best thing we could ever be employed in let's bow our heads and let's